This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks presents True Crime for the short on time. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying bite-sized true crime case. Before we get started, Olivia, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How has your week been? How are you doing? It's good. I'm ready to wrap up the week and start the next week. I am right there with you. Just seems like there's never enough time in the week. So I am always excited when we get the opportunity to sit down, talk these true crime cases, even if they're the short ones, because this is a short on time episode. And I'm really excited to get into this one. I know you and I have talked about this one personally, but there hadn't been a lot of like breaks in the case. And we were debating whether or not to talk about it on the show. So really, really excited to get into it. I've been getting a lot of requests from people. Please do this. Please talk about this. Please, please, please. And I've told them over and over and over. There's there's no details yet. And so I'm so excited to sit down and really go through all the nitty gritty that we know so far. We're recording this episode on January 5th. And today the authorities actually dropped an affidavit that kind of outlined some of the actual evidence, which I think a lot of people have been waiting for. So really, really excited to get into it. Again, this is a short on time episode. Do you think we should just jump into it? Yes, I'm chomping at the bit. Awesome. So this week we are covering the Moscow, Idaho college murders. Now, I'm sure if you're like us, you've been following the story, but if you aren't familiar, we wanted to give a quick recap. So on Sunday, November 13th, 2022, the bodies of 21-year-old Ethan Chapin, 
21-year-old Madison Mogan, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal, and 21-year-old Kaylee Goncalves were found stabbed to death. Mogan, Kernodal, and Goncalves lived at a home with two other students at 1122 King Row, and it was located near the University of Idaho's Fraternity Row. Chapin was dating Kernodal and had stayed over that night. At around 8.57 p.m. on Saturday, November 12th, Kaylee Goncalves posted to her Instagram for the last time. One of the photos showed Mogan sitting on Goncalves's shoulders as they were surrounded by a smiling Chapin and Kernodal. That night, Mogan and Goncalves hung out at a local bar. Chapin and Kernodal attended a party together at the Sigma Chai house on campus. Now, in the early hours of the 13th, around 1.41 a.m., Mogan and Goncalves were captured on a Twitch live stream getting something to eat at a local food truck in the area. Now, in that video, a man in a hoodie can be seen standing in the background. The internet immediately began to speculate about that man's involvement, but police quickly cleared him as a suspect. After eating at the food truck, the pair called a sorority driving service who dropped them off at about 1.56 a.m. Chapin and Kernodal returned to the home from the party at around 1.45. Kaylee Goncalves then reportedly called her ex-boyfriend several times between 2.26 and 2.44 a.m. Now, the ex-boyfriend has also been cleared as a suspect. Then, sometime between the hours of 3 and 4 a.m., the four victims were stabbed to death with a fixed blade knife. The two other roommates who lived in the home survived unhurt. At around 11.58 a.m. on the 13th, a call was made to 911. A surviving roommate reported an unconscious person in the home. Then, at roughly 2 p.m., the university notified students of the tragedy and urged them to stay at home and shelter in place. The murder shocked and disturbed the college town, and immediately rumors about motive began to circulate. The mayor of Moscow, Art Bettage, claimed that the murders were a crime of passion, but later backtracked that statement. And after their initial investigation, police didn't believe that there was a further risk to the community. But students, residents, and the families of the victims were frustrated about the lack of information and leads being provided by local authorities. On November 16th, the local police held a press conference. Now, because of the community's concerns, at that point, police stated, we do not have a suspect at this time and the individual is still out there. We cannot say that there is no threat to the community. And as we have stated, please stay vigilant. By Thursday, November 17th, the coroner had officially ruled the deaths a homicide. Based on the type of wounds inflicted on the victims, the coroner believed that they were most likely attacked in their sleep. Some of the victims actually had defensive wounds that indicated that they awoke during the attack and tried to fight back. Additionally, the coroner found no signs of sexual assault. Police began to track down every lead possible, and some suspected that the murders were connected to an Australian shepherd that had been found skinned and filleted a few weeks prior. Now I need to say something right here. I'm going to agree with everybody and say that I was really like, it seemed like it took so long for them to come out with details of this case. So I could see where family and friends and even the community being so disheartened that there's no leads, there's no suspect, or that is this going to be a serial killer? What's going to happen? And then my second thing is what with an Australian shepherd and who would skin a sweet little Australian shepherd? For those that don't know, I have an Australian shepherd named Eleanor. Yeah, I knew you were going to have a hard time with that. And apparently in the weeks prior, someone had found this dog murdered, mutilated. And so initially the thought was, well, whoever did this must have been the killer. I mean. Which would make sense, but they were able to determine that they weren't linked. 
Okay, good. They need to find who got this Australian shepherd, though. Now, others claim that Goncalves had a stalker, but police were able to dismiss both of these stories. And where some of this came from is apparently she had been followed by a man in a store in October, but they weren't able to say, like, this was a case of crazy guys stalking her and following her. They didn't find any link between the two. Okay. On November 25th, Idaho Governor Brad Little announced that $1 million in state emergency funds were being allocated to the investigation. Additionally, five vehicles were towed from the home to be searched. As police worked to identify the suspects, one thing became clear. According to the Lada County prosecutor, Bill Thompson, one of the victims was undoubtedly targeted. On November 30th, police released a list of potential suspects that they were able to clear. This included the two surviving roommates, the man in the food truck video, the driver who took Mogan and Goncalves home, Goncalves' ex-boyfriend, and another unknown student who was listed on the home's lease but had moved out months prior. And another thing I saw around this was the driver who had actually taken them home, he went to police and was like, hey, I drove them home. Here's a time-stamped receipt from Taco Bell showing that I was here like getting food at that time. He heard about it, and nobody had reached out to him, and he was like, I need to make sure that they know exactly where I was, which I thought was you know really interesting. But he was just like, let me make sure I'm not on your radar at all. Oh, well, heck yeah, especially if he's hearing about this. And, I mean, it's obviously a, probably a small town. And I'd be like, those girls were in my car. But I like that his alibi included eating Taco Bell. Sounds about like something we would do. Not, yeah, nine times out of ten, that would be our alibi. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have done it. I was at Taco, was Taco eating. Bell. I was eating yeah. Taco Bell. I was at Taco Bell eating an Enchirito. <laughs> okay, keep going. Keep going. Now, despite being able to clear these potential suspects, the lack of information and transparency continued to weigh on the family. Kaylee's father, Steve Goncalves, said there seems to be confusion everywhere you look. It's just absurd that this kind of stuff is going on right now. On Wednesday, December 7th, police asked the community for help in identifying a vehicle seen near the home the night of the murders. It was a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. Police believe whoever was in that car may have important information to share regarding what took place on November 13th. On December 13th, a clerk at a local gas station handed police security footage of a white sedan passing by the station at roughly 3.45 a.m. This clerk had actually took it upon themselves to review the security tapes a little at a time to look for potential clues or evidence. Now, over the next two weeks, things seemed to be quiet. Then, on December 30th, a suspect was arrested. Washington State University PhD student Brian Christopher Koberger was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania. There was a warrant for Koberger charging him with four counts of first-degree murder. The 28-year-old was studying at the college's Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology in Pullum, Washington, and this was only about eight miles away from the home on King Road. Koberger was arrested at his parents' home in Albright, Pennsylvania. A search warrant was executed on his Pullman apartment. Now, we do know that sometime after the murders, Koberger's father flew to Spokane, Washington to ride 2,500 miles back to Pennsylvania. During the drive, the pair were pulled over twice— once for speeding and once for tailgating. They were driving a white Hyundai Elantra. Now, at the time that I was doing my research, Idaho police were keeping very tight-lipped on the evidence they may have had. Now, as we talked about earlier, an affidavit had dropped as of today. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So as I go through this, we're going to talk about some information that was given by a source. And then as we get towards the end, we're going to talk about what exactly was in that affidavit. Okay. So I think they'll kind of match up. But as we go through, you know, hey, this is speculation compared to that source. And then, okay, this is what the source said. How close was it to the actual thing? Okay. So again, this source that was close to the investigation at the time was saying that it only took a matter of days to identify Koberger as a suspect. The source said that genetic genealogy was used in the investigation. And if you've listened to some of our older episodes, we've talked about genetic genealogy and a few Mm -hmm. episodes that's come up. What seems to be very interesting is that genealogy is known to, you know, be used to solve a lot of cold cases, but this may be the first time that it was actually used real time in an ongoing investigation. That's pretty cool because our other cases are like, oh, we took the DNA that we never had matches to, and then we compared them to these private databases from the genealogy companies. So this is like Ancestry and 23andMe, those kind of things. Yeah, and we'll talk about the process a little bit more as we go through, but that's 100% correct. So at the time, a news station actually interviewed a retired FBI agent named John McVeigh, and he said that it may have taken crime scene technicians some time to separate the victims and the attacker's DNA. And a piece of that is even if you're suited up like Dexter, right? If anybody's a fan of the show Dexter, it is almost impossible not to leave your DNA. So you're thinking about holding the sharp knife, right? And if you're attacking somebody, especially because some of these victims had defensive wounds, you know, if that victim scratched this person or if the knife slipped and you accidentally cut yourself, well, now your DNA is on the scene and you have to go through and separate all that out. Yeah, and that's just like them getting the DNA from under fingernails and stuff. Like when you fight back, you know, they'll scrape under fingernails. Right. Or if I cut myself, now my blood is there with the victim's blood and, you know, these crime scene technicians go through and take all these samples. It's very easy to say, okay, well, this is Goncalves' sample. This mm-hmm. is Kernodal's sample. This, okay, now we have this unknown sample. So apparently, according to the source, They took this unknown DNA that was recovered and it was ran through the national CODIS system, but there were no hits because Koberger had no criminal history. Now, again, according to the source, the DNA sample was then uploaded to a public DNA database. Now, the same source at the time claimed that genealogists got several hits and they used those hits to build a family tree using birth records, death records, census data, and more. And as we go through, we'll talk about a little bit more, but the particular site that they used is a smaller company. So a lot of people think, you know, we're using 23andMe, we're using Ancestry.com that have these, you know, millions of users, Mm -hmm. when in actuality, most of the time when this data is run, it's run through a company called GED Match, or I believe the other one is like A Family Tree. Mm -hmm. They're much smaller. GED Match only has about 2 million users. So when you think about like grand scheme, Mm-hmm. Not nearly as much. So using that smaller database, the best that you can really hope for is if you do get a hit, you're hoping for like a second cousin. A lot of cases, it's like a fourth, fifth, you know, probably someone that Koberger's never actually even met, but they're able to take that, build that family tree out and say, okay, based on how we've worked this down, this could potentially be our suspect. They worked down that tree until they arrived at Koberger, who drove a white Elantra. Now, at this point, according to the source, the FBI began to track Koberger. Now, according to those same reports, they collected a discarded item that had his DNA on it. 
Now, after the arrest on Tuesday, January 3rd, Koberger waived extradition in Pennsylvania and was waiting to be brought to Moscow, Idaho to face those murder charges. Now, this is where I want to talk about what has dropped today, because again, we're recording this on the 5th and police released the official affidavit containing the evidence against Koberger. And I have not read any of this, so I'm so excited. Yeah, it was really interesting to see it come out. And, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show may not realize this, but we have a real audio genius who helps us every week to make the show sound as good as possible. So shout out to my friend forever, Matt Halliday. But he texted me today and was like, hey, are you following this case? Like they just released the affidavit. And I was like, I'm doing the research on it. Like, let me pull up the affidavit and read it. So shout out to him for letting me know that this dropped. Because if we were going to talk about this, we wanted to make sure we did it when there was a break in the case. And it just kind of timed perfectly. So Mm -hmm. now police say Kernodal received a DoorDash order at the house at approximately 4 a.m. Cell data also indicated that she was likely awake and using the TikTok app at about 412. Another student who lived in the house and in the affidavit they're referred to as DM told police that she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. by what she said sounded like Goncalves playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms. A short time later, the roommate said she thought she heard Goncalves say something like, there's someone here. The roommate said that she could hear crying coming from Kernodal's room and opened her door but didn't see anything. She then said that she heard a male voice say something like, it's okay, I'm going to help you. At 4.17 a.m., a security camera in the area picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper, followed by a loud thud. A dog could also be heard barking. This camera was less than 50 feet away from Kernodal's bedroom. Now, around the same time, the same roommate opened a door for the third time after she heard crying, and she saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. So right there, I want to stop because I'm thinking about putting myself in the shoes of this roommate and I'm hearing all these weird noises. And then there's just this strange figure in my house at like four in the morning. And I'm just trying to think about like what's going through this person's head, you know, because I've had friends that have lived in houses like this, where it's a bunch of people and like your roommates have people coming and going and you may not put two and two together. It's super early in the morning, but like I would be freaked out for sure. A hundred thousand percent. And this is interesting because it's always been, and I know a lot of people on social media have been like, how did they sleep through this? How did the roommates not know? How do you not hear four of your friends getting murdered in your home? I mean, it's not like they live in a 10,000 square foot home. Like this makes so much sense, but I need to know like what happens because obviously she lived to tell the tale. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the really tricky part. And I think that's also what I'm bracing myself for when it comes to frustration. Mm -hmm. Because we've done so many of these cases or like talked about so many of these cases where we never actually find out what the motive is, right? And Mm -hmm. like you're left to only speculate. And, you know, Matt and I were talking about that today. And it was like, well, you know, could it be that this guy was just, you know, an incel and he had hit on one of these girls and they turned him down. He's like, I'll teach you. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, had he been watching him for a while, maybe like coming to this college town. These are the questions I've got that I'm like, yeah, they're kind of burning in my head as all this unfolds, you know. Now, the roommate described the person as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. Court documents state that the man walked past the roommate as she stood in frozen shock phase. The man then walked towards the back sliding glass door. The roommate immediately locked herself in her room. 
Okay, I have some more questions. So, on the stuff that I have read, weren't there keypads to get into the rooms? Didn't each Not- room have an individual keypad number code to get in? Or was there just a keypad to get into the actual house? Because there was, there was things saying, like, someone had to have known the keypad code to get into the house. Now, the only thing that I've seen about the keypad mm-hmm. is... Goncalves' sister has said that the house where the girls live was a popular venue for parties. So apparently there was always a lot of people coming in, coming out, and it was surrounded by other college kids' homes, again, but nobody saw anything. I guess due to the community being so close and an overall feeling of safety for the most part, she believes that a lot of people had access to that door or that code may be something that was known. Also, she saw the man walking towards the back sliding glass door. So if that back door didn't have a code on it, that back door was unlocked or something of that nature, they may have just come in the back and bypassed it or an open window. And again, I think those are some of the questions that as things kind of play out, we'll get to know. But right now, the affidavit is really just this is the evidence that we have that's linked it. So this is one of those cases where we're definitely going to have to do a follow up because I think mm-hmm. we've got a lot of questions. I think the community and the family probably have a lot of questions friends, people in that town, in that community, and even like, you know, people like us who are in this like true crime world who, who are fascinated by these things. I think this is where we're like, the wheels get spinning. We're like, come on. Like, what about this? And what about that? And I want to know this, you know, so need to know more. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting. I have one more question. Do we know if this roommate is the one who called 911 at 1158 in the morning, the next morning? That's a good question. Right now, the affidavit doesn't say anything about it from what I can see. I am skimming through it and I don't see anything there. My thought is probably that, again, this is a a house that's known for a lot of traffic coming in and out. There are five people living in this house, right? Because there was four victims plus two surviving roommates. So you see somebody leaving and maybe your brain is trying to rationalize it as like, oh, well, that's, you know, maybe that's a guy that Goncalves is brought home or, you know I mean? You're college kids. You're right, got, right. you know, you know, you've got people coming in and out. You're bringing people home, stuff like that. So I'm wondering if maybe that's why. And maybe, you know, we try to rationalize things. We're like, oh man, like that was scary, but it you know, nothing. it's most likely just yeah. this, you know what I mean? And if I call 911 and they come out and then it's, you know, I met a guy and brought him home after a party or something, you know what I mean? Like it just seems like while you're scared, you would also try to like rationalize it away. Is kind of how I was thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, who knows what any of us would do in these situations, but it just raises questions. And I think now that we're actually getting information, it's raising more questions. But I also see probably why they're being so secretive on some of this information anyways, because if they mess this case up and he, you know, any little detail can screw it up and then he may not get charged with first degree murder, like four counts of first degree murder. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they want to make sure that if they get him, they've got him dead to rights, which makes a lot of sense. And that any information that's being released is accurate. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, because you remember we were talking about the source who said they found DNA evidence. So apparently when they were at the scene, they found a sheath to a knife. So if you're not familiar with what a sheath is, it's like, you know, let's say you've got a like a big like hunting knife. A sheath is that thing that you would like attach to your belt and it slides in there. So like it doesn't cut yourself. It's like a, like a cover. Oh yeah. Like the leather covers. Yes. Yeah. So they found the leather cover and that cover had a U.S. Marines logo, like a K bar logo on it. Mm -hmm. And they were actually able to lift DNA from the button of that sheath or of that cover. 
they also found a shoe print that had a diamond pattern, which is very similar to like Vans or like some type of skateboard shoe. So they were then able to take that DNA that they found on the cover of the knife and they ran it through that company GED match. And that's where they found like a third or fourth cousin and began to to build that through. Additionally, they were essentially able to track Koberger's car from different security cameras through the area. So they could see like, okay, he was here at this time, here at that time. They also subpoenaed his cell phone records and they found out that his phone was actually showing as offline or not connecting to any cell phone towers at the time of the murders. So what that means is he either took you know a SIM card out, he turned the phone off, something that prevented it from connecting to the, the towers at that time. And what's interesting to me is this guy is studying for his PhD in criminology, right? So you would know they can look at cell phone data, right? Like, so let me make sure that I'm not pinging off any towers or anything like that. The other thing that I find it really interesting that I was talking about with Matt was that he's smart enough to do that, or I don't even want to use the word smart. I think that's the wrong word to use. He's aware enough to be like, I can't let my phone show that I was in this area at the time. But But, he left the knife, the knife sheath. That's a hard word. And left his DNA. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like as somebody who studies criminology and how people who commit the crimes that he is accused of committing get caught you would think there'd be a little bit more foresight. So, so that's where we are as far as the updates. I obviously want to pick your brain. What are you thinking? How are you feeling as we go through this? I know for me, I was just like a little mind blown because I was like, man, it felt like there was nothing, nothing, nothing. And then it's like, here's all this information. Yeah. I was super excited when we finally decided to sit down and you were going to do this case. And then it's even cooler that today actual information was really released, you know, but I just can't wait to see how this plays out. And I just think we're going to have to give little updates because I think probably each week or, you know, every so many days, we're going to get little snippets of information as this case continues to build. But I'm just glad that they finally caught someone. And so far, it sounds like they might have the right guy. But, you know, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. So just because we think something doesn't mean that it's necessarily the truth. Um, But I'm glad that we have a suspect that is under arrest. And I think that that will put uh, Moscow, Idaho at a little bit of ease when they go to bed tonight, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm with you, right? Like you are innocent until proven guilty. What I will say is that the evidence doesn't look so great against them, especially if they're able to match DNA. But really for me, what it's going to come down to is I want to know motive, right? Like I want to know why. Was it one of these girls who was targeted? Was it multiple? Was it random? You know what I mean? Like, did he just decide that he was going to do this and just pick something out? I just wonder how he knew how many people were in that house. And like, did he only think that four people were home? I mean, there's just so many questions that we can ask. And then my biggest question is the motive too. Like, I'm trying to figure out what his research, his PhD project is in. Like, is his motive something behind, like, let me try this because this is my study that I'm trying to figure out on people who kill people? Or was he after, you know, is it something similar like one of the girls turned him down? Or is it a random murder? You know, I I just, I don't know. Yeah, and from what I understand, the three girls, like, were close. Like, they were, you know, a group. So I wonder if there was some kind of like interaction with him as a group, you know what I mean? But like 
to do what he did, it feels like you would have had to like watch them. Like you would have had to know like routine. You would have had to know that they were like coming home at this time. You know what I mean? So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And I think you're right. I think this is one that, you know, we're definitely going to be revisiting a couple of times, probably over the next couple of months. And, you know, as we start gearing up for trials and things of that nature. But I mean, if you want to talk deadbolt test, I have a feeling I know where you're putting this at, but you know, let's, let's talk through it. 10. This is like every single woman's biggest fear, or at least my single self's biggest fear. Hey, I'm a man, and this is one of my biggest fears. You know the whole, I've talked about it before, but the home invasion, that is absolutely terrifying to me. You know what I mean? And then also as like a parent, you know what I mean? Like your kids at Mm -hmm. school and you think they're in like this safe town and then you get a phone call that something like this has happened and it's got to be like world shattering. You know what I mean? So- I'm putting it at 10. I assume that you were putting it at 10. 10. But of course, I'm going to throw it out to the listeners. We want to know where do the Moscow, Idaho murders fall on your deadbolt test? If you're anything like us, we're assuming that it's a 10 as well, but we definitely want to hear from you. Reach out to us. Find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod, Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, do yourself a favor. Come hang out with the best community on the internet. We would love to interact with you. As always, we do have a Patreon, so if you are interested in supporting us, helping us keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. Sign up. we got a bunch of different tiers, stickers, mugs, all sorts of stuff. You know that we appreciate any of the support that we can get. If you cannot financially support the show, that totally makes sense. We definitely understand. Just listening to the show and hanging out with us every single week means just as much. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing what we do with your friends and family. It really means the world to us. That is all that we have got for this week's short on time episode. Please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you next week with an all new, truly terrifying, bite-sized true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. We'll see you next week.